With that, I'd like you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 19 and spend some time in his word. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started into it. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. And we ask that now, as we give attention to your eternal word, that you'd speak to us by the presence and the work of your Holy Spirit. But we also think, Lord, across the continents about our brother Saeed, imprisoned in an Iranian jail. Lord, would you be near to him? Would you give him special grace and special comfort? Give him your protection, Lord, body, soul, and spirit in the midst of those very breaking circumstances. Lord God, pour out your spirit upon him and find a way to use him even in the midst of his terrible circumstances. Do this, Lord. And pour out your spirit upon us as we give attention to your word. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now with our attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 19, but maybe I should just give you the briefest of reminders of our first 18 verses that we covered last week. In the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, John, the Gospel writer, introduces us, us, us to a man or to a being known as the Word. And he tells us many things about this being the Word or the Logos. He tells us that the Logos is God, that the Logos is eternal, and that the Logos became flesh and walked among us, that the Logos is none other than Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And so now having told us these remarkable things about Jesus, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus is the one God sent to this world, it's fair for you or I, anybody else who would read the Gospel of John to say, says who? You know, anybody can make dramatic statements about themselves or about somebody else. You you can say, I'm Napoleon, I'm uh, Abraham Lincoln, I'm uh, Batman, whatever you want to say. And look, the real issue comes down to is, what do you have to back that up? What evidence is there to make such an assertion? Because anybody can say anything they want about themselves, but how do you back it up? Well, John, throughout his entire gospel, is going to back this up. And he's going to do it specifically in a powerful way in the text we take a look at today by bringing forth many witnesses to testify to us as if they were in a court of law. They're going to testify to us and tell us who Jesus is and invite us to believe the same thing. Take a look here, beginning now at verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? I love how directly he begins it in verse 19. The gospel writer John, referencing now to John the Baptist, he simply says, this is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist's testimony. He's going to tell us now in greater detail just who this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is. And as he introduces himself to us, I want you to notice that it happened occasioned by an interview that came to him from the religious leaders that were in Jerusalem. And I think these religious leaders had a good reason to go and interview John the Baptist. After all, here was this man who appeared kind of crazy. He dressed in a strange clothing. He ate locusts and wild honey. Today, people would say, man, John the Baptist, really organic, way to go. (laughs) 
That's a real paleo diet right there. Locusts and wild honey. And John the Baptist, not only curious in his appearance and in what he ate, but in just the way that he preached, so wild, so direct, so confronting of people. John the Baptist was a very unique individual who had a tremendous following. So it made a lot of sense for the religious leaders to say, we better look into this guy. We better check him out. And as they come and they ask and they want to know, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And look how John the Baptist replied in verse 20. He said, I am not the Christ. Matter of fact, In the original language that this was written in, a form of ancient Greek, there's something there that's significant about that phrase, I am not the Christ. Greek scholars write and they tell us that the grammatic emphasis is on the word I, as if John said this, I am not the Christ, as if to imply that the Messiah was near to them. It's just that John wasn't the one. Well, I'm not the one, John says, But if you'll listen to me, I'll point you to who he is shortly enough. So are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. And then they want to know, well, then who are you? Explain yourself to us. And John says, I'm glad you asked. Look at it here. Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethbar beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. They asked him again, Who are you? Explain yourself to us. And John said, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. But I'll tell you who I am. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I am the one who has the holy mission to prepare the way of the Lord. It's as if the thinking goes something like this. He's the one who cries out and says, the Messiah is coming. Get your life ready. The Messiah is on his way. You want to be ready for him when he comes. So repent, believe, get your sins cleansed. Get ready for a royal visit. There's something about this that I like in John the Baptist's reply. John the Baptist, in his reply, made it clear that even though the religious leaders wanted to know who are you, John really didn't want to talk about who he was. John wanted to talk about what God gave him to do. He didn't even talk about himself. I'm not going to tell you about who I am. I'm going to tell you about what God gave me to do, the work he gave me. And he gave me the work to cry out in the wilderness, to to baptize people as an expression of their repentance. But, notice those words in verse 26, there stands one among you whom you do not know. I am not the Christ, but there stands one among you. You don't know him, but he is the Messiah Prepare your hearts, prepare yourself for him. Now, verse 29, we're going to get introduced to this one that John spoke of. Notice this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an amazing scene. Now, remember this. This, chronologically speaking, happened many days after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. 
It happens even after, probably immediately after, Jesus returned from his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. After that endurance, Jesus comes out of the wilderness and he comes back to John the Baptist. And do you notice how the phrase is stated here? Look at it here at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Can you picture that in your mind? Here's John the Baptist dressed out in his strange clothing and in his weird manner. And he sees Jesus coming towards him. And what does he say? He cries out and he says simply this. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, what a strange thing to have somebody say to you or about you. Do you understand what John meant when he said that? He said, you, Jesus of Nazareth. You are like the Lamb of God, and God is going to use you as a lamb to take away the sin of the world. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. In the Old Testament imagery of a lamb, by the way, the idea of the image of the lamb, or even the lamb of God, it's throughout the Old Testament. Oh, you'll find it from beginning to end. This idea of the lamb of God How does a lamb take away sin in the Old Testament mindset? Let me put it to you this way. The lamb doesn't take away sin by skipping through a meadow. The lamb takes away sin by laying down its life. I find this to be so dramatic, almost strange, that John the Baptist lays his eyes on Jesus in the distance, and he says, not directly, but indirectly, he says this, You're going to die. Your life is going to be laid down as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Your life will be poured out. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was that Lamb. He is that Lamb. He's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's the animal that was slain in the Garden of Eden to cover the nakedness of the very first sinners. He's the Lamb of God that God promised he himself would provide on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. He's the Passover lamb to Israel. He's the lamb for the guilt offering in all the Levitical system. And he's Isaiah's lamb to the slaughter, ready to be shorn again and again and again. He fulfills that position of the lamb of God. And I wonder when those words came to the ears of Jesus. And friends, this is just my imagination perhaps, but I wonder if Jesus didn't swallow hard when he heard that. Oh, not that Jesus didn't know that he was coming to die and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Of course he knew it. But to be reminded of it at the very beginning of your ministry and have it come back to you, this is who you are. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know what's wonderful about that phrase, takes away? It really has that idea of not just bearing sin upon your shoulders as if the sin of the world was put upon the shoulders of Jesus that he might bear it, but actually that he might bear it away, that he would take it away, that he would remove it from his people. And that is the wonderful promise of God, not just that Jesus will come and bear your sin, but that he will bear it and remove it from you. Don't you want that? Don't you need that? And aren't you happy that he made a provision that's so big that that it's not just providing for the sin of Santa Barbara. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Santa Barbara. But no, much bigger than that. The whole world 
throughout every generation. That's how much, if you want to say, capacity there is in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Nobody, nobody will come to Jesus and Jesus say, sorry, it just ran out on all my mercy and forgiveness. You know, I I had a lot yesterday, but man, there was a big flood of sinners that came in from Santa Barbara. Now it's all out. It'll never, ever happen. He came to take away the sin of the world and to lay down his life to do it. What a dramatic statement, don't you think? Notice, though, John goes on at verse 30. He says this. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You see, John clearly laid out, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that's not where his testimony ended. He says, no, I know that he's someone special. I know because I was there when he was baptized, and I saw the Holy Spirit come upon him in a unique and abiding way. And I know the one, he is the one, I should say, that not only, even as John baptized with water, he said he's going to have another baptism, a greater baptism, a baptism with the Holy Spirit Therefore, John could say with confidence, did you see it there? Verse 34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Go ahead, picture him. Picture John the Baptist in a court of law. Mr. Baptist, tell us now, who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And he would lift his hand in a solemn declaration and say those words, I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. This is my solemn testimony. He's more than a man. I wonder. I wonder if John had known great men before this. Maybe high priests. Maybe people involved in the leadership of Israel. Maybe he ran across a Roman general once or twice. I wonder if John the Baptist would say, I've seen great men in this world. I've seen the leaders and the generals and the high priests and the religious leaders. And I'm here to tell you that this is not just a great man. This is the Son of God. This is God himself. This is no mere man. Well, we could conceivably just stop right there. We have the testimony. You have the testimony of somebody who was so much closer to Jesus than you and I was. Someone who saw him, someone who spoke with him, someone who experienced him and says, I tell you solemnly that this is the Son of God. But John says, no, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you more testimony about who Jesus is. And now he's going to talk about the disciples of Jesus, starting here at verse 35. Look at this with me, please. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. Stop right there. We read in verse 35, John stood with two of his disciples. Well, which two of his disciples? Later on in verse 40, we find out that one of them, his name was Andrew. Okay, that's one of the two disciples, Andrew. So John, the Baptist, had two disciples. One's name was Andrew. The other's name was... The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us his name. But you know what's interesting? In this account in particular, there are so many eyewitness details, like the posture of John the Baptist, like exactly what John the Baptist said, like the time of day that it happened. 
It's so filled with eyewitness testimony that most people think that the unnamed disciple of the two, one of them was Andrew, the other one was probably John himself, who appears many times in his own gospel, but he never names himself. He's too humble to name himself, but many times a person will emerge in the gospel of John. You go, that was John, but he's just not naming himself. So here you have John and Andrew who started out as disciples of John the Baptist. So start again here at verse 35. Oh, excuse me, yeah, verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Did he say that every time he saw Jesus now? Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with them that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Do you have this scene in your mind? Two disciples, John and Andrew, they were disciples of John the Baptist. Until one day, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming along and he said what he seems to be prone to saying these days about Jesus. He says, behold the Lamb of God. And then, without the text specifically saying it, but everything about the feeling of the text leads us to believe this. He said to his two disciples, John and Andrew, you go follow him now. Go. You're no longer my disciples. You go follow Jesus. Friends, isn't that a beautiful and a precious thing? When anybody who says, I will present Jesus, I will preach about Jesus, that they actively send people to Jesus. Go, you go to Jesus. You need to go meet him. I can't be your savior. I can't be your mediator. I'm not the one who dies for your sin. I'm not the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You go to the one who is. And John And Andrew went to Jesus. And then in the gospel of John, we have the first recorded words of Jesus. You know they're the first recorded words of Jesus because look at your Bible. They're there in red. They're the first red letter words. By the way, does everybody know the gospel writers didn't write with two pens, one black and one red? This is added by people later on. But still, I think it's an accurate reflection at this particular point. These are the first words of Jesus in the gospel of John. He asked them a searching question that I think he still asks humanity today. Did you see what the question was? Look at it right there in verse 38. What do you seek? What what are you looking for? You come to me because John the Baptist sent you, but I want to know from you, what are you looking for? Don't you think that there's a sense in which Jesus today, he asks all of humanity the same question. He asks you, what are you looking for? You know, we see some common aspects to humanity regarding what people look for. Some people look for success, don't they? Uh, Some people look for security. Some people look for love or romance. You come to Jesus, what do you seek? What are you looking for? Jesus, I'm looking for success. I'm looking for security. I'm looking for love or romance. Do you realize that even your instinct to seek after those things, that that's really something that's rooted in the nature and the character of God. Those are longings that God himself put inside you for them to be satisfied in him. 
Why do you even want to be a success? Well, so I, I know that I am somebody. So I know that I have a place in this world. So I know that I belong. So, so I don't feel like I'm a zero, a loser. Don't you realize that Jesus says to you, all that can be satisfied and should be satisfied first in me. You try to have it satisfied in anybody or any place else, it's going to get misguided. It's going to become an idol in your life. But get it satisfied in me first. No, no, Jesus, what I really want for is I want security in my life. I don't want to have to worry about tomorrow. I don't want to have to go to bed, you know, afraid of my financial problems or my relationship problems or all the difficulties in my life. I just want some security. Jesus says, I put that longing for security inside you and I meant it to be satisfied fundamentally in me. I'm your security. You think security is having a lot of money in the bank? You must not be reading the financial news the last few years. You you think security is this or this? I'll tell you what, security in your life, it's being connected to the God who's enthroned in all the universe. That's security. And you say, no, what I'm really looking for is love and romance. And Jesus says, I understand. I put that longing inside of you. But the real reason I did was direct you first to me to have that need fundamentally satisfied in me so that you know you're loved, so that you know you are precious in this world and you are cared for. Now, friends, I don't believe there's anything wrong with wanting to be a success, with wanting some security in this world, with wanting to be loved. But when we put those things in front of our pursuit for Jesus, they become idols. And they're never satisfied in our life. Do you realize what a important, what a profound question that was that Jesus asked them, what do you seek? And then Jesus answered them, verse 39, come and see. You see, Jesus directed them to himself. You want to find what you're looking for? Come and see. Come with me. In other words, I love this. He didn't direct them back to John the Baptist. Oh, you know that John the Baptist fellow seems to know a lot about me? Go back and talk to him. No, no, no. Because ultimately, the mission of every John the Baptist, the mission of every preacher, the mission of everyone who stands in my place or your place as a witness of Jesus Christ, we're there to direct people back to Jesus again and again. To Jesus. As I said before, I'm not your mediator, I'm not your priest, I'm not your guru, but hopefully what I can do is I can direct you to Jesus. Because ultimately, you're going to have to come and see from him. You're going to have to get connected to him and have him teach you and have him lead you and have him speak to you in and through his word and by the work of the Holy Spirit. So going on here, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Okay, one of the two disciples that came from John to Jesus was Andrew. And when Andrew came to Jesus, what's one of the first things he did? He said, I want my brother Peter to come to Jesus. And so he ran and went to Simon Peter and he brought Simon Peter to Jesus. That's what Andrew did. Now you gotta love Andrew, don't you? Andrew throughout the scriptures is such a great example for us because three times in the Gospel of John, the three times that we meet Andrew in the Gospel of John, what is he doing? He's bringing people to Jesus. 
He brought his brother Peter to Jesus. Then he brings a little boy to Jesus. And finally, he brings some Greeks or Gentiles to Jesus. That's what Andrew's doing all the time. And what a beautiful thing for you to fulfill in your life. How can Jesus Christ use you to bring someone to himself? How can you use him to invite me? You know, we're doing this whole thing with, the, with Harvest America in October, are we not? Don't you think this is a great opportunity for you to be an Andrew? For you to fulfill that role? For you to simply be that person who introduces another person to Jesus? And friends, I want you to know that through the centuries, this is how most people come to faith in Jesus Christ. A Peter as an Andrew who introduces him to Jesus. And this is natural because it is natural in the experience of the Christian life to say, God has done something good in my life. I want him to do something good in the lives of others. It's a very natural thing for us to do. Now notice his testimony. What did Andrew tell Peter about Jesus to introduce him to him? He says, verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Andrew on the witness stand Who do you think Jesus is? He says, I'll tell you who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the one expected by all the Old Testament scriptures, the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. Verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Well, I love this. With Andrew and John, John the Baptist introduced them to Jesus. But with Philip, Jesus just walked right up to him and said, hey, you, you, you come follow me. Isn't that beautiful? I I bet there's more than one life that that's how it happened to you. There wasn't necessarily a preacher. There wasn't necessarily someone speaking, but just out of the blue, Jesus got a hold of your heart. And as much as he even could have done it physically with audible words, Jesus spoke to your heart and said, you, you come, you follow me. Maybe you looked over his shoulder. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to you. You come and follow me. That's how Philip came to faith in Jesus Christ. But then going on now, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Philip is so excited when he meets Jesus. He goes and he speaks to his friend Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, you got to know, this is he of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. That's what he says in verse 45. This is the one. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. You got to meet this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And as soon as Nathaniel hears the words Nazareth, he checks out, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now you need to know this about the city of Nazareth. It's not that Nazareth was a notoriously wicked or bad city. That's not it at all. It's just Nazareth was nowheresville, completely insignificant. It's like nothing good or important or anything comes from Nazareth. How can you say the Messiah comes from Nazareth? It just just wouldn't happen. And he says, listen, you're prejudiced against Jesus because you heard he came from Nazareth. You shouldn't be that way. This is the answer to your prejudice against Jesus Come and meet him. Look, I'm not going to try to talk you out. I'm not going to go on a pro-Nazareth, you know, discussion to get you to like Nazareth and then maybe you'll like Jesus. Forget about that. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell you, you come and meet Jesus and all your prejudice will go out the window. That's what he said. You just come and see. Now look what happens. Verse 47, we begin. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, behold, An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. 
Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So, Philip convinces his friend Nathaniel to go and meet Jesus. And as Nathaniel is walking to Jesus, Jesus sees him from a distance. And what does he say? He says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Do you know what that phrase means, no deceit? It means there was no hiding, no deception, no trickery or cunning in Nathaniel. If I could put it to you this way, he didn't have a mask. Behold, an Israelite who doesn't wear a mask. Jesus said, I like that. I like an honest man who comes to me honestly. I think this is a big deal for us. Because we, in our present day, in our present culture, we're very used to wearing masks. We're very used to pretending that we're something that we're not, or that we're not something that we actually are. Matter of fact, it's not unusual for us to pretty much put on a church mask, isn't it? You know where it is. You keep it securely in the car. And then when you park your car for church, you put on the church mask. You come in and you're your church self, which may or may not have any correlation to the real self that walks seven days a week, or six and a half days a week, I should say. And then when you leave here and get back in your car, you put that church mask off and leave it aside. Friends, can I tell you, Jesus is still looking for Israelites in whom there is no deceit. He's still looking for people who don't wear the church mask. Now, I know that sounds scary. It sounds scary to say, I'm going to put away the church mask, and I'm going to be in here just like I am out there. Can you imagine? I I, I don't mean to, you know, poke at particular sins or anything. But let's just imagine for ourselves someone who, outside these walls, they speak in a pretty profane and rough manner. Their, 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 um, their language is, is, is not holy, let's just say that. Can you imagine if they said, well, you know what, I'm going to determine myself, I'm going to talk in here, just like I would talk out there. Oh, wouldn't that make a commotion in church, wouldn't it? Now look, it's not that I don't mind that people aren't on their best behavior when they come among us. That's a good thing. But there's a matter where being on your best behavior gets to just be phony. And at least if you took off the mask and were like that amongst us, then we could say, hey, here's something maybe God wants to deal with in your life. Hey, here's something that Jesus might want to work on amongst you. You see the idea here? Jesus loved it. Nathaniel was a man who didn't wear a mask. And he says, you were under the fig tree, I saw you, and this blew Nathaniel away so much that look at what he says about Jesus in verse 49. He says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. That's Nathaniel's testimony concerning Jesus. You're the son of God. And they had just met. And Jesus just said a few words about seeing him under the fig tree. And it blew his mind so much that he said, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And I wonder if Jesus almost chuckled when he said, verses 50 and 51, look at this. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, 
Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Isn't that wonderful? He says to him, you're blown away because I told you what I said to you about the fig tree. No, no, no. You're blown away at that. You haven't seen anything yet. You will see greater things than these. As a matter of fact, you will see that I am the way to heaven. And Jesus illustrated that with a picture drawing from a vision that Jacob had in the book of Genesis where Jacob saw a ladder going to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending upon that ladder, going from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. And what Jesus said is he said, I am the ladder. You want to get to heaven? I'm the way. I'm the ladder. You can only go up and down upon me to get to heaven. That's what you're going to see. And it's going to blow your mind. So friends, don't you see that we see something really wonderful in this passage of scripture? We see something that maybe you weren't expecting. We see, first of all, we see many different ways that people come to Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, Andrew came to Jesus because of the preaching of John. Peter came to Jesus because of the witness of his brother. Philip came to Jesus because of the direct call of Jesus. Nathaniel came to Jesus because he overcame prejudice and he met Jesus for himself. One of the things I love about the Christian life is there's no one way that people come to Jesus. That God calls people many different ways. There's all different ways that people come to Jesus. The important thing is that we come to him. That's one thing. The other thing we notice is that each one of these people had their testimony about who Jesus is. John the Baptist said, listen, I'll tell you who Jesus is. He's eternal. He's uniquely anointed with the Holy Spirit and that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew said, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the chosen one of Israel. Philip testified, Jesus is the one prophesied in the Old Testament. And Nathanael said, This is the son of God, the unique son of God. He's God himself. Each one of these people had their own testimony of God. Here's the question. What's your testimony of Jesus? Now, I'm not saying, what do you know about him from the word? Although that's the most important thing. I want you to know Jesus according to his word and from his word. But on top of that, I want to know, what is he to you personally? I was speaking to somebody between services and he said, David, when you said that, I felt like shouting out, healer! Because he's a man who had experienced the healing power of Jesus Christ. And I suppose that if we allowed him, it would just go up like popcorn, wouldn't it? He's my healer. He's the one who freed me from my addiction. He's the one who put my marriage back together again. He's the one who gave me some sanity in my financial life. He's the one who removed the guilt of my sin. He's the one who gave me hope when life seemed utterly hopeless on and on and on. The question is, what's your testimony of Jesus? We read and we believe these testimony of those who were first close to him gave, but now we have to have our own. God help us to do it. Father in heaven, that's our prayer. Our prayer is that you would give each and every one of us our own testimony of who Jesus is, that we would see and understand and believe everything that your word says about him, because that's who he really is. But Lord, we so long that who Jesus really is would come and connect to us without the mask and that our lives would be touched by him. 
so that we could say, healer, deliverer, forgiver of my sins, restorer of broken things, on and on and on. Jesus, I guess what I'm asking is that you'd make it personal for each of us. Do this, Lord, by your power and by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.